everyone and welcome to Open Dialogues, the podcast by Open Dialogue. I am your host, Micah Coppins. Hi everyone, and this is Ronald Ashry from Open Dialogue. And so today I'm so very happy that we have our wonderful conversation design expert guest, Greg Bennett, with us to talk about all things conversation design, obviously. And Greg, tell us a bit more about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me. First of all, I'm just, you know, super excited to be here. I couldn't resist sitting down and having a nerdy conversation about conversation design with y'all. So very excited for this. My name is Greg. I lead conversation design uh, as a practice and team at Salesforce. So for folks who aren't familiar with Salesforce, it is a customer relational database company at its heart. Founded about 22 years ago and started out mostly for the sales sort of industry, making sure that you could sort of track the the life cycle of of your deals and whatnot in a database that you can query pretty easily. And then they're soon after that expanded to the service industry. Now we have multiple products. Each product is called a cloud for different industries as well, marketing, commerce, et cetera. And so my team is relatively new to Salesforce. I mean, considering the company's been around for quite a while, conversation design as a practice has existed for almost two years now, formally. So I've been in my role formally as a conversation designer at Salesforce, nearing on two years. Before that, I was kind of moonlighting as a conversation designer. I was officially a user experience researcher, but we were working on uh, chat and voice products where folks uh, needed a little bit of guidance on how to best approach the conversational experience for those tools. And so I, given that my academic background is in linguistics and I had done a little bit of conversation design in previous roles, jumped into that and, and helped them on it until I got to a point where I was like, okay, so this is a big enough role that I'd like to just make it a fit. So Yes, that started what about yeah almost two years ago. Now I have a team of conversation designers reporting to me who each uh, sort of lead conversation design efforts for their specific cloud. So there's a conversation designer for every cloud at Salesforce, and their responsibility is essentially to craft the conversational experience for that cloud, either in Slack or in uh, web-based chat. We acquired Slack, I think the news broke sometime last December. And so when I got back from holiday in January, everyone was like, so conversation designer, where's your team? And I was like, give me a weekend. I gotta go hire people. And it's been really just, it's been super accelerated since we've started the integration work there. So that's a little bit about what I do and the company that I work with and work at. and. Yeah, I think that's about it. (laughs) Thank you, Greg. Yeah, so very interesting. And it was actually a question that I had for you. I have multiple questions around that that same topic. It's not conversation design per se, but growing a team. So you obviously had to find conversation design. And so I'm, I'm I'm wondering, like, what is your take? What is your view on the lay of the land, the number of conversation designers that exist out there and, and kind of that? experience of finding conversation designers? I mean, I think there's a great pool of talent out there. And certainly like it, you know, there are so many companies that I see right now that are hiring for a conversation designer that it definitely encourages me for the given applicant pool. There's a lot of people who are applying for roles and there are a lot of roles to apply for. So I think it's certainly, you know, a booming field. 
which I think is great because obviously, I mean, I'm biased, but I think conversation design is really crucial to making a successful conversational product. But when it comes to the sort of pool of candidates, I mean, I certainly feel like it's very diverse and that's the thing that is probably the most exciting for me in terms of how i built my team at salesforce the thing one of the things that i highly prioritize is just a diversity on staff not just in discipline and in background but also in terms of culture and you know language variation etc i very much sort of see it as like my academic background is in sociolinguistics and, you know, I grew up in the United States of America. So my concepts of English, at least in terms of what I natively speak are, you know, somewhat limited. And I try to acquire folks on the team who can add to that. So I have folks on the team who are second language speakers of English, who speak African-American vernacular English, or Indian English, all these sort of different English varieties to help represent that in the product, as well as folks with different backgrounds. So there's, you know, folks from a background of UX design or architecture, nursing, all these different kinds, I someone on the staff who started their own business. So like a lot of different types of backgrounds, because I think that helps to expand the scope of how we approach conversation. The greater variety of, I think, backgrounds, the greater sort of set of lenses we can bring to bear upon the situation and potentially see something that I missed or that someone else had missed when we're, we're going through the design review process. So that's something that I, I very much like about seeing the field is as, they, as folks transition into conversation design from different roles, they bring with them their perspective, where they come from, all of that. And like, I think for folks who are applying for conversation design roles, I would encourage you to celebrate that. Make sure to sort of bring that to the forefront. That's how it, you differentiate yourself as a candidate when you're applying for a role. And for folks who are hiring, I would say hire for that. Because if you hire a bunch of people who have the same background as you, there's a lot of things that you potentially would miss in the design process. Super interesting, Greg, and I find it very praiseworthy that you kind of thought about hiring a very diverse team. And I think it's particularly important, probably in conversational realms. Well, it's important in any realm, but I think particularly when it comes to language use, because language use is so very yes. variable across the field. Um, I also find it very interesting that you come from a social linguistics background. Yeah. My, 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 my background is in linguistics as well, but I'm more of a more themes kind of person. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm down for morphology. Um, yeah, and uh, but uh, I find social linguistics also very, very, a very interesting field. And as well, neuroscience, I find is also very interesting to look at how that kind of works together with conversation and design mm -hmm. uh, and so not to put you on the spot but well perhaps I will but uh, I feel like when you when you like think about the inclusive design conversation and, and kind of inclusivity uh, one of the things I was looking at this morning on LinkedIn and I'm trying to find other people's opinion about is that I saw this post where someone was uh, talking about inclusive design and they mentioned a wide variety, uh, like a wide array of different audiences. And to my wonderment or surprise, there was very little, no, there was none in that post, but in, in general, there's very little 
awareness or inclusion of neurodiversity as mm. part of the inclusive design conversation. And I was wondering if that's something that you have thought about. And yeah. Yes, very much so. Actually, that was one of the first sort of vectors of diversity that came up when we started working on conversation design for Slack is because, you know, if you've ever used Slack, you know that there's a lot of different modalities that take place in the graphical space. So like lots of GIFs and emoji and, and all this sort of different visual stimuli, which then brings to mind, okay, so for folks who potentially, you know, there's all different kinds of neurodiversity and I'm not an expert on really any of it, but I always sort of try to take the perspective of if I enjoy this, it could potentially suck for someone else. And for that person, how do we make it suck a little less kind of a thing? Um, how do we give at least an option to make it a little less, you know, intense for someone who potentially can't uh, or has a hard time perceiving an interface where there's lots of this sort of like, you know, graphical interplay. And so that's something that I think came to mind as well. Like, you know, in the past, I have struggled a lot with anxiety. And so I consider that to be something to keep in mind also. Like if the, if the page becomes very crowded and my eye doesn't know where to go, that could be anxiety provoking. And that may or may not necessarily be something that falls into the realm of neurodiversity, but it is something that I sort of keep in mind in the sense of I'm like, let's say there's someone who's got chronic anxiety, you know, could this be very triggering for them, you know? just sort of these like different vector points on the experience. And I think that's something that I've always just sort of tried to do in my work is, you know, I think we all can relate to the experience of like potentially being the quote unquote other within a group. And I think the thing I like to encourage folks to do as they approach the conversation design process is to put on the hat of like, okay, so remember how you felt in that moment where you felt like you were the other because of some variable X variable. Now, Imagine you were in a group of a bunch of people who were just like you, but there was someone in that group who wasn't for some reason, whether that's for an accessibility reason or a neurodiverse reason or a linguistic reason or racial reason, sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever, all of these different sort of vectors on your social identity and who you are remember what it felt like to be that other and design for that other. Even if let's say you don't know what that thing is yourself like i'm in no way you know very well versed in neurodiversity so then seek out someone who's an expert on it and get them to weigh in on the experience and we have a handful of i think like slack channels and whatnot and groups around neurodiversity and conversations around neurodiversity at salesforce and so those are the folks that i go to where i'm like okay so here's potentially what we're thinking of does it potentially introduce an accessibility constraint or does it potentially trigger something within the, the scope of what we know about neurodiversity that I'm not thinking of or that my team aren't thinking of. So again, I think it's super important. I, I sort of see it as at, at best, it's a usability issue when you, when you don't think about those, you know, those characteristics for your users. At worst, it's an equity and an access issue where, okay, now this person cannot use your product because you just straight up haven't thought about them. And from a social perspective, the equity issue is bad because now people don't necessarily have full access to the experience. From a business perspective, it's bad because you have just left money on the table as part of your total addressable market. And that is often how I frame the importance of including this in the work around conversation design on the business perspective. 
is when I talk to stakeholders from the business perspective, I say, I mean, are you cool with leaving money on the table? Because we can do that. But it seems kind of like a missed opportunity. Yeah. And so I guess that makes a very nice transition into communicating the importance of conversation design to mm. both stakeholders and people that are building conversational applications. And yeah, so I, one thing that made me go into conversation design was a developer telling me that I'd soon be out of a job as a UX designer because conversational AI didn't require any design work. And um, That's a hot take. Yeah, and I, and I was like, what? Well, you'll see. I'll go into conversation. <laughs> I'll show you. I love it. I think some people might think that it's more about kind of just the technicalities and then perhaps a bit of the wording, but there's so much mm. more, right? Uh, there's so mm. many more layers to what is actually conversation design. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like there are roles within the role of conversation designer um just like there are roles within UX design yeah so I'd love to hear a bit more about how do you organize that in your team at Salesforce and what is your take on uh, the importance of conversation design and how do you communicate that sure so in terms of how I organize it on my team when I hire a conversation designer I hire them as what I kind of call and conceptualize as a quote-unquote full stack conversation designer so I think there are like different types and and sort of like dis- like different types of disciplines and subdisciplines within conversation design. Part of I think being a relatively new practice at Salesforce is just that I'm like I'm not going to be able to request like 30 headcount and all these resources will just flow to me. It's going to be a little bit tighter. And so how do I kind of expand the footprint of the of the team as much as possible with the least amount of resources? And so The reason why I kind of came up with this idea of like full stack conversation design is that, well, A, there's a resourcing constraint, but B, I also think that like, it's important for a conversation designer to kind of see and have impact and touch points with that full conversation design life cycle, all the way from the interaction design to the copywriting, to the training and the feedback loop. And so I have my conversation designers do all three of those things, as well as their own usability testing. So I'm kind of a hard ass. <laughs> uh, I'm a tough boss, but I do ask them to do um, all of that as well as get into the builder itself. So there's a lot of, I think, conversation designers who will, they'll do their conversation designs in a Lucid chart or a, you know, a Figma you know, prototype or what have you, and then hand the specs off to the developer. And then the developer will go into the builder, whether that's Einstein bot builder or Dialogflow or what have you. And then they put it all in and then the designer has to check it. Well, at Salesforce, the Einstein bot builder is declarative. So you don't need to use code in order to get it to work. And so I've told my designers, like, get in the bot builder. Like, these tools are declarative. So you don't need a developer to put it together. So get in there and put it together. And then if you do need code for something, then go to the developer and tell them what kind of code you need. So... I ask a lot of my conversation designers, but they all, I think, do a tremendous job at it. And I think it helps to also kind of create this very holistic experience where, you know, as a conversation designer, you are going to understand the sort of locus of the experience the best out of anybody who's working on the project. And as such, you can kind of, you know, you'll know instinctively what to be able to sort of draw on in order to expand and enhance that experience. And so... I do as much as I can, like as 
the you know sort of team lead and manager to provide enough resources to make that experience that sort of curation experience if you will a little bit easier so for example because my conversation designers do everything um aside from like the actual code they i try to provide them like libraries that they can draw from so for example we have a set of guidelines around how to go about creating a strong conversational experience for Slack apps, but then also a library of like these language components that we have used in the past that have gone to product, have been blessed by the powers that be, so to speak, that you can then reuse for consistency because you wouldn't want to switch between one app and the other and have it greet you in a particularly different way or have it you know, facilitate a particular intent in a different way. We want that consistency. So we have the patterns library, but we're also developing a training data library. And this also sort of comes from my background in linguistics as well. Like as a sociolinguist, oftentimes when I would do a study, I would need some kind of language data. And you have two options. You either buy a corpus <laughs> that exists out there of language data, or you build one yourself. And I kind of think of the same thing when it comes to intent training is okay, my designers will be in training a bunch of intents. It'd be really great if they didn't have to start from scratch every single time. So if we build a library of intents with thousands of rows of data that they can draw from, and we randomize those data sets every time you pull from the library, then the training process becomes a lot faster. And one key sort of element of the training data collection process that we focus on is making sure that we collect data from these historically underrepresented varieties of English. So right now we're collecting data for African-American vernacular English, Chat Chicano English, Southern uh, English from the Southern US states, and English as a second language. So that way we can continue to sort of like make that data set a little bit more robust. And then you just pull from it like a book when you wanna train an intent when as a conversation designer on my team. So that's how my team is structured. <clears throat> um, so in terms of like to senior leadership and communicating to them the importance of conversation design, it's sort of shifted over the course of time. Like in the beginning, I didn't have any conversation designers to really prove out the work. So I had to kind of show them A, the work that I'd done in the past, but also like create these demos on the fly and these design prototypes and a design vision to show them exactly what it would be that I and additional conversation designers could deliver. So one thing that I found super important is just to prototype. So we use Bot Society to make like very quick like prototypes for a conversational experience because that way the audience can see the turn-taking interaction. And oftentimes that's what I do is I would say like, all right, so here's what the experience could be and here's how we get there, which I think is just very much sort of your basic design brief and design vision. And that I think was what was able to sort of get it off the ground. And now that I have conversation designers on the team, the way I talk about it is in terms of if you didn't have your conversation designer, if we took them away from what they're working on and they no longer were working on the project, like what roles would you need to draw on to backfill that person in order to still get the product to market? And so I'm like, all right, if we took your conversation designer away from sales cloud, you would need a UX designer to kind of think through potentially the interaction design. You would need a technical writer to do the copy for the conversational copy. You would need a data scientist to do the training data piece. You would need an engineer to do the bot builder piece. So that's four people, four people who also don't have expertise in this particular kind of craft in order to get the product where you want it to go so you can ship it. 
or you could give me that one person. Is, are, are all your conversation designers tomorrow going to say, we need a pay rise? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also, tell my, I also tell my team, I welcome that. You know, I welcome anybody on the team to advocate for themselves. Everything I usually tell them is I'm like, get that money. This is a business and it's math. So if you want, if you want more money for what it is that you're doing, and I encourage that to anybody in the conversation design community, the job market is hot right now. So ask for the money that you deserve. That's my little soapbox there. But in terms of like, yeah, I think like trying to frame it for leadership, I think a little bit of it is because it's like, okay, I could help, you know, shepherd these different roles and to cobble together what my conversation designers would do. And if that's what you prefer, then we also need to talk about the other projects that those four roles are currently working on and how those projects may be de-resourced in order to support this other work. Or you could give me the one headcount that I need to make it. And that's, I think, sort of where we are now in terms of where we go in the future. You know, as the work continues to grow and the backlog continues to grow, then the question will be like, okay, well, how much can each conversation designer really take on? And that's something that I also pay a lot of attention to also. I mean, you know, considering we're all working from home or most of us are working from home and, and everything going on with sort of remote work and the pandemic, the thing that comes to mind for me is that there's this balance between being really excited about the work and potentially burning yourself out. And that's something that I keep in mind because that's, that's me and my history. Like when I'm really excited about something, I'll do it 24 <laughs> seven. And then before you know it, I'm like, oh my God, like, I don't want to do this at all anymore. That was me in grad school. That was me in the beginning of my, my UX career. Now I've kind of shifted to a point where I'm like, okay, I've got all this excitement. How can I draw it out and make it last as long as possible? Because if you spend it all in the beginning, then you end up burnt out. And that's something I also think about with my team as well is, you know, yes, it's great that you're excited about the work. Um, let's make that last. And it's also important to show to the business, like what those limitations are, because if you do everything, and this I think is like advice that I give to folks who are new in conversation design roles and are potentially the only conversation designer at their company or in their organization. I know your pain. I've been there. And my main piece of advice is like, if there's holes in the boat, do not plug them. It is not your responsibility to plug them all. Because if you keep the boat afloat by doing all the things all the time, A, you bring yourself out and B, the company thinks that it's just doable. The leadership folks need to be able to sort of feel that impact. And so as the team grows under me, one thing that I look at is, okay, like, so what's that threshold of how many you know, projects and how many apps a single designer can take under them. And then once they reach that threshold, then I go to leadership and say, hey, they're maxed out. So if we want to do this new thing, we have to drop something else or we need to add a conversation designer to that space. I, th I think that's, that's really interesting. And I've had at least, I've had a few conversations over the past two weeks where I had to tell people, Actually, let 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 me feel the pain, like let yeah. the thing bubble up, and then yeah. we, can, we can figure out the the solution completely. Yeah. So th there's there's two things that I would like to explore a bit more, and one is very generic, so I'll leave it for later. But if you think of the conversation design that's happening now, and you talked a bit about the process, and you have mm -hmm. designers that do pure design 
and then that needs to go through a, a tool and, and an mm -hmm. actual implementation. And I'm a very strong advocate of you, you have to do it in the tool. I mean, the whole yes. thing of, of open dialogue is it designs with you and you yes. design with it. And, and if you separate the two, it's just not going to work. Mm -hmm. how, how do, if, we, if you take what we, you currently consider a complex experience mm -hmm. and think of that at 10 times the complexity, mm. where do you think things will start to break in terms of the tooling that we have available to us mm -hmm. now? So part of it, I think, has to do with like the maturity curve of a bot once you deploy it. So and that's something that like I didn't really start to de develop an opinion on or insights on until, you know, we did it. And I worked with customers who actually, you know, deployed their bots. And I was like, oh, OK, we would do that differently next time. The main thing, I think, is just the scale of dialogues within the builder and really sort of modularizing those. So whenever I work with a team who potentially has started a conversation, you know, flow, a uh, little bit of the interaction design piece, like saying like a lucid chart or a flow chart or something like that. Oftentimes what I end up doing is sort of recompartmentalizing pieces where I'm like, okay, let's say that something broke down in this particular piece of the conversation. You want that to be as isolated as possible. So that way, if you have to go into the bot and fix it, you can keep like, it's almost as if you could keep these other parts on, but just shut down this one little piece or pillar of it, as opposed to you have to shut down the whole bot because now you have to go into like five different dialogues and fix the issue. So like a good example that comes to mind for me is, was this helpful? A lot of times people will go into a chat bot when they're creating a chat bot. And if they surface like a knowledge article or something, the first thing afterwards is, was this helpful? And you have the option of either making the was this helpful, you know, utterance or turn part of every single dialogue where you're potentially providing the user a piece of information and want to know if it's helpful. And don't get me wrong, it's an important metric to have. Or you could have it as a completely standalone dialogue, you know, ask if it's helpful that you reference in each of those other dialogues whenever you provide information. So that way, let's say there's something wrong with was this helpful? then it, now all of a sudden you don't have to go to every single dialogue where you're going to provide information and ask them if it's helpful and fix it. You just go to the was this helpful dialogue and fix it there. And then you have done it across the entire bot. So modularity is a big thing that comes to mind for me, like how you can potentially reuse dialogues as much as possible. Like if you ever look at a like interaction design flow chart that I've done, you'll see a lot of like loops or like a lot of like paths that are leading to potentially the same place. And you like as a UX designer or, or an interaction designer, some folks might bristle at that. They're like, oh my God, like why would you create intentionally create loops in the conversation? Because usually we are taught like, you know, you don't want to have this endless loop in the conversation because you could trap the user in a part of the interaction that they wouldn't want to be in. But I actually have found that there are instances in which case a loop is really helpful to give the user flexibility. So like, let's say in the case of approving or denying something using a chatbot, like I wanna approve an expense report, I'm a manager and my people spend money, they send their expense reports up to me, I chat with my bot and my bot's like, hey, you've got these things that need to be approved. If I approve it, then you wanna confirm, okay, so you wanna approve this thing. 
Well, I, you know, let's say I'm working on my mobile. I have my mobile phone. I also have really thick, fat fingers. And so accidentally I pressed, yes, I want to approve this thing. All right, so you've confirmed it, but now I actually have decided, no, I don't want to approve this thing. Well, then we need a way to get back to, you know, the very beginning of this where I could potentially approve it and then go down the route of denying. And the way I've done that in the past is I almost intentionally create this endless loop where you could approve and deny as much as you want. And it would confuse the crap out of a human being, right? Because like all that back and forth is just like mind boggling. But for a bot, if you clear your variable every time you start the dialogue, it's actually really easy. And that I think is another example of like, hey, you can create this endless loop that potentially has a lot of power and help and flexibility to extend the conversation and mitigate a need for a conversational repair or a reprompt. Um, so I think the, the main thing there is again, like the modularity and figuring out like how you can really reuse pieces to your advantage to keep like the bot sort of hierarchy, if you will, within the implementation. That makes a lot of sense. And we need to book a session and talk about all the dialogues. Because there's, there's, there's some interesting things there and okay, end, awesome. end of plug, but definitely, I mean, a lot of what you're saying rings so true and, and that's what informs a lot of what we're doing. Awesome. Okay. I, I, just always, I almost wanted to say, ha, huh. <laughs> <When we're> <laughs> like, why is not everyone like talking about this other than talking about bot personas of, or happy parts? And, yeah, and, I mean, I, I mean, think, you know, and those, and those are both super important things as well. I think it just depends on like where in the implementation lifecycle you are, where like, you know, maybe if you're earlier on in the implementation lifecycle and so many folks are starting to create a bot for the first time, that that's where those questions are like the most important. Maybe that's why we see that more often right now, but then potentially as these bots mature and they're on the market longer then that's when I think folks are going to be like, oh, crap, like I embedded all these things in, you know, 10 different dialogues. And now I have to go to 10 dialogues to fix it, you know, Damn. instead of one that I'm calling. And this is sort of me putting my UX hat on rather than conversation design. But for chatbot builders or conversational agent builders, I think what I've seen a lot of is kind of like, um, you know, like a flowchart where things sort of connect linear linearly. But something that I've said for years is really the idea that, I mean, from linguistics, we know conversation isn't a linear thing. I had a professor in grad school whose name is Heidi Hamilton, and she used to say, having a conversation is like climbing a tree that climbs back. <laughs> it's this thing that involves turn taking. It's a relationship. It's circular. And so the way that I kind of have thought about how we would potentially visualize it in a builder is not in a 2D format, but in a 3D format. So like rather than like a, a circle or this flat tree, You've got like a globe or a sphere, and then there are these different points that also almost connect like a network. Like our minds have connected at, at, yes. some, at, at some point in time. I think um, Mike, Micah has literally shared with me, here's how it would look in 3D. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> To which my answer was, well, yes, we, we kind of need to find the, the development reasons for all of yeah. that, but definitely that is, that is the path. So then the, the, the other question I had that really intrigues me with your context where, you know, there is, there, there is Salesforce and they actually acquired Slack and you're building experiences for Slack. 
mm-hmm. is and and it occurred to me as you were talking about you know things that bug people and how do we design conversations at work and so on mm-hmm. you're not just designing an experience that needs to embed itself in a context you can also influence the context so as in mm. you can now i assume it's not that simple but it's literally you can change slack and build conversational experiences for slack mm-hmm. and and together with that there is designing a simple or or a single experience mm-hmm. and it's designing a space where this experiences take place and they can also take place between humans and how do you mm-hmm. influence those conversations totally and and that that all seems very tempting so i wonder uh-huh. where your mind is in terms of where is all this going our minds have connected ron like <laughs> i think so regarding the part about like the environment in which the conversation lives I've always thought, and you know, I think this is most conversation designers do think it, about it this way, is that it's very much multimodal. The, it, it, we have to sort of linguistically situate the bot or the conversational solution in a time and place and space. So if it lives inside of a Slack, where does that Slack app live broadly within Slack? Is it only something that happens in a one-to-one uh, direct message? Is it something that lives in a much bigger channel? Is the channel private or public, all of these different sort of vectors on how the bot exists in space. I think as we think through that, the other piece of it is also like, because Slack is used for a work context, the name of the game is efficiency. And if there's anything I can tell you as a sociolinguist, it's that conversation is not the most efficient way to get things done sometimes. Conversation is really good. And we make this distinction of like different types of work, kind of like this more like initial sort of surface level work. And then we have more like deep work where, you know, you want to kind of go deep as opposed to sort of stay on the top layer. And when you are wanting to sort of stay in the top layer, Slack is really good for being able to help scale those experiences and make things happen very quickly. And there's a there's a method for using conversation for that sort of surface layer work. That said, sometimes conversation could potentially take longer than a graphical UX solution. So for example, in our guidelines at you know Salesforce for the Slack integration, one thing that we do say is if you have to ask more than four questions in succession, you probably should not be doing it conversationally. And so that's sort of where I kind of keep encouraging folks to start thinking is, it's no longer about clicks because conversation is not click-based, it's turn-based um, and graphical experience aren't necessarily turn-based. So that's why I kind of use the word steps is I'm like, if you have to take eight or nine turns, 10 turns to accomplish this thing in conversation, but you can do it in five clicks, then do it in the graphical experience because it's just a fewer amount of steps in general. If it takes eight or nine clicks to do it in the graphical experience, but you can do it in like one or two turns of conversation, do it conversationally because it just takes less steps overall. So like one thing that comes to mind is, so Salesforce is a relational database. You can put your customer information in it. Let's say that you have a contact in Salesforce, Dwight Schrute. If you've watched The Office, Dwight Schrute. Okay, great. So Dwight Schrute works for a company 
Dunder Mifflin. Dunder Mifflin exists in Salesforce as an account. So like we sell to Dunder Mifflin or whatever. Let's say I'm a salesperson and I found out that, spoiler alert, in season two, Dwight Schrute decides to leave his job at Dunder Mifflin and start working at Staples. Well, now I need to go into Salesforce and change Dwight's account from Dunder Mifflin to Staples because that's what's the information that's supposed to be listed on his uh, contact. So I could go and I'd have to go into Salesforce, find Dwight, click on details, click on account, change the account, click save, that's six steps. Or I could just at mention Salesforce and Slack and say, change Dwight Schrute's company from Dunder Mifflin to Staples. And then the bot says, okay, I've changed the this and that to this. Is that confirmed? Yes, okay, four turns. So we save at least two steps there. And if we think about it in terms of like time on task, it's probably exponentially shorter to just do it conversationally. So those are the kinds of things that I, I kind of think about in terms of like, efficiency when it comes to conversation. And that's like the main thing that comes to mind for me in Slack in the multimodal space is like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you can leverage the graphical experience, do it. If it's the most efficient thing, if conversation is the most efficient, efficient thing, do it that way. That's, that's a really good example. And, and I like that way of thinking. And it does the, so if I once upon a time used to, the idea that led to what is open dialogue right now was we're going to build a bunch of bots for Slack. Mm-hmm. So we started thinking, well, if we're going to build lots of bots, how do we build them? Hence, we need mm-hmm. a little framework, hence open dialogue. Mm-hmm. So if I remember back to those days where I was heavily involved with what is going on with Slack, mm-hmm. one of the selling points was you keep everything in this single window and your your conversational interface becomes almost your, it's this collaboration platform and operating system into the rest of your organization. Mm-hmm. Is that still part of the conversation in, in terms of, of Slack and the role it plays? Absolutely. And I think also to touch on something you'd mentioned earlier, like the idea that a bot or you know conversational app could facilitate conversation between other humans as well. It's all like the the ethos of Slack really is to create this space by which you have like these quick and direct connections with work colleagues to just straight up get your work done and in like in an easy and efficient manner. And I think that that's certainly still the case. Like how can we keep it within this sort of like single pane of glass? But now as we think about it, like at least from my team's perspective, thinking about it from the conversation design perspective, as we introduce more apps into that interaction ecosystem, how do we do so in a way where the apps feel assistative rather than like noisy? So you wouldn't want to have an app where it's just sort of like always chirping at you. In the customer service realm, there's this use case called swarming where potentially multiple service agents would quote unquote swarm or pile onto solving an issue at the same time because they share expertise. Everyone across the team is also potentially encountering the same issue or case from customers. And so if we all sort of do it once in this space, then you know we don't have to do it in silos or individually. Slack is really great for that, where you know you could potentially have an app where you know I'm a service agent and I'm like, okay, all right, so 
I'm having this issue with this particular, you know, this repeat issue with this particular customer or this particular account, and I don't have the expertise to fix it. So I need you to find people within the team who know how to do this thing and put us all in a channel so that way we can figure it out. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we work on with the Slack apps for Service Cloud. So you, you mentioned modularity a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely uh, something that is on my mind as well. And my, my question was around, you know, in UX, you have design systems mm-hmm. that allow users to, well, user designers to use different components in different ways and just change one thing and it changes everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you kind of touched on it already with your pattern library. And, and I feel like that's a bit where it's going, but what... Mm-hmm. What for you, what would an ideal conversation design system look like? Oh, wow. We are sharing a brain (laughs) today, the three of us. I mean, I, so it's interesting. The reason why I call it a patterns library is because I'm very sensitive to the idea of like what constitutes a design system. And I think oftentimes like those terms can get a little conflated where I'm like, that's really just a library that you pull from where all the components exist, but you know, what make, what actually constitutes a system. And so I don't necessarily like, I hesitate to call what, what we have done so far a design system, but it certainly is like this repository where we can pull from. And I think that's really important. It's, you know, it's something that across, you know, any kind of graphical based UX design has seen extremely crucial for the sake of their work. I kind of think about it like the thing that sort of inspired me around it was if you have any, have either of you seen the Amazon original TV show called Making the Cut? So it's this like fashion design reality show type competition with yeah. Heidi Klum. <laughs> it's like Project Runway. And so I was watching that show during the pandemic a while ago and the, they had designers on the show who you know could sew and designers who could not. And at one point there was a designer who didn't have a seamstress to like sew the stuff for them and they had to make a pair of pants. And so they were like, okay, I got to go pull out my pattern for the pair of pants. And I'm like, see, you're not inventing how to build or sew a pair of pants from scratch every single time, because guess what? We know how to make pants. And so that's sort of how I think about it with conversation also is I'm like, my designers shouldn't have to sit there and figure out who's going to make, like, how do I make a pair of pants? They should be able to just go to the library and say, okay, I need a pair of pants and I'm going to like use it this way. And we're off to the races. And it also helps to create consistency. So that way, like the user knows how to essentially interact with this thing in a similar way across products. So that's a long way of saying, like, I think it's super crucial to have either a library or a system of some kind and around language patterns in particular, you'll need, you'll need sort of parameters around how the language should be phrased, how it maps to your voice and tone and how they sort of like fit together across the interaction as well. Yeah. And that, that's the kind of ambiguity about conversation. Is it as a, as a linguistic mm-hmm. uh, and a sociolinguistic thing, like it's, it's both a thing that you build between participants as you go. And as your kind of professor said, you're climbing up the tree while the tree climbing back. Yep. Um, but, but on the other hand, there are patterns that are identifiable yes. and that linguists and conversational analysts have been studying for so many years. And same thing with information architecture and UX design, like there is knowledge that we can pull from. We don't have to start with a blank page. So I, I do think that. 
yeah, I do think that is important. Thank you, everyone, for being part uh, of our listeners. And we will be back with another episode very, very soon. And we have more exciting guests coming up. Bye-bye.